All right. Welcome, everyone, to the Mint Door podcast. I'm Dr. Laura Schwint. And I am Dr. Karen Tindall. And we're excited today because we have a wonderful guest with us, Dr. Kim Harms. And she is coming to us from Minnesota, which, Mm -hmm. as many of you may know, I lived for a little while and hence the accent. So my accent is Minnesotan. Dr. Harms will be Minnesotan and Karen's will be Arkansanian with a little bit of a UK twist. Perfectly Arkansan, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Dr. Harms, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It's just a privilege to be here. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Love you too. Yes. Oh, well, you practiced clinical dentistry for over 30 years and in both public health and as a co-practice private practice owner. Um, And that has led you to where you are now. So I'd love if you gave us a, a little background on your journey through your clinical um, practicing and to what you do now? Well, it's it's been a long journey. Um, and uh, I graduated from dental school in 1981. And at that time, uh, not a lot of women around at the time. And so um, that was kind of a new thing in many areas. Most of the places that I practiced, I was the first woman in the area. Uh, but I practiced with my, I started out in the United States Public Health Service, which was a fabulous experience and National Health Service Corps and was a clinical director for a, 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 health, a dental portion of the health clinic. And then I, I uh, my husband and I, uh, bought a practice up here in Minnesota, Minnesota, and he's from Minnesota. He's a 12th of 14 children. So we came up to be near his family and it was fabulous. I love it here. I just love it here. Uh, and in the meantime, I did a lot of other things. I worked with um, developmentally disabled patients who were transferring from a, um, a large clinical treatment center to group homes. I started a little pilot project for the state of Minnesota and did a little work in there as we were building our practice uh, and then I worked a lot in uh, dental leadership. I was uh, the first woman president of the Minnesota Dental Association. And then I worked on at the ADA as a national spokesperson for uh, over 21 years. Uh, and during that time, I did learn a lot about uh, managing conflict and managing crisis situations. Uh, our practice went pretty smoothly. It was a small town practice Uh 30 years, we were in uh, Farmington, Minnesota. I loved every minute of it. Uh, and then I went out on a an injury, basically, um, keep your neck straight, do what your mother says, sit up straight when you're practicing. I had a, a problem with my neck that translated into nerve damage in my drilling fingers of all places. So I had to stop practicing at that time. So now I'm actually working with my daughter, who is a dental attorney. It's fabulous. And I speak on, uh, because I've been through a lot in my life. Um, I did lose my husband, Jim, last year. I lost a son to suicide, lost my mother to suicide. I've been through a lot of issues in in my practice life. So I talk to uh, dental groups about managing a crisis and conflict in their office, managing what I call emotional emergencies, which is anything that distracts you from clinical care. And I've been having a, a great time doing that. That's an amazing background. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for, um, we'd love to touch on some of those, um, but I think Karen is mostly interested in one topic there. Yes. It, <laughs> you said that you were the first woman president. 
of the Minnesota Dental Association. Can you give us some idea of what that was like at the time when you became that first woman leading the way? How was that? Well, it was it was a wonderful time, actually. And uh, I, what I had to do, kind of, I, I had to make a deal with them uh, when they asked me to come in because I had children at home. And at the time, the president of the Dental Association was present at every subcommittee meeting. And, and so probably four to five times a week, they would have meetings at night. And this was before Zoom. You had to you know, be there in person. That wasn't too far of a drive. It was only about a half hour. So not too, too, too hard for me. But I couldn't do that. I had kids at home. You know, I had basketball games. Those were the, the more important to me, actually, than, than the dental meetings. So um, I made a deal with the Dental Association. I said, look, I will be there at every board meeting. I'll preside over every board meeting. I'll testify when you need to testify. I'll do all the things that we need to do. But I, I have to, I'm not going to be showing up at all the subcommittee meetings. I can take the report from the subcommittee meetings. So I did change uh, a bit about what, you know, how we, how uh, the president managed the meetings. I was also the first woman in the whole 10th district, which is a whole upper Midwest first woman. And so a uh, part of the job as a president is you go to the other um areas in your district. So North Dakota, South Dakota, Iowa uh, was in our in, in our district. And so uh, we would, um, they before I became president, it typically was a husband and the wife would show up and, and so on and so forth. And usually they were older. And so I kind of changed that too, because my if I was leaving for a couple of days, I had kids at home. So um, my husband would stay home, which was great. He was a great partner for me on this. And uh, and I couldn't stay very long. I really couldn't stay for the as, as many of the social occasions, but I s- basically stuck to this strictly to business. And we had a big business when I became president because a large insurance company had actually started a program just as I was coming in where they said, you are a good dentist, you're prime. You are a bad dentist. You're non-prime. They don't say bad dentist. It just says non-prime, but I think we all get the point. Mm-hmm. And we aren't going to tell you how we make that determination, but we're going to tell the employers and everybody else. Mm-hmm. And so I had to kind of take them on. Mm-hmm. And I think I got a lot of support from the members because I did take them on. Mm-hmm. I took them right on. And we ended up passing legislation uh, by thank goodness for our students by going to the students and involving them as well uh, to eliminate. Basically what we, what we did is we had, we said, well, what is your criteria? How can we be judged good or bad based upon this unknown secret proprietary formula? And uh, we passed a law that said you had to reveal the formula to us and tell us how you're judging us. And as soon as they did that, of course, the program just fell apart because they really couldn't justify that formula. And uh, so I, I had a very busy year, but I also had tremendous support from the members that, and that was 20 years ago. And people are still, you know, great. They talk to me about it now, which was, which has really been, been wonderful, but we had, I had a big challenge and that's always a fear when you become president of something that, you know, you show up on your, your watch, something big happens. Mm-hmm. So it was a very busy year. That's, I mean, listening to how you described that, I think, so you know, this is a topic that comes up really frequently for us of how do you juggle everything? How do you, you know, be the parent? How do you be the dentist or the doctor or mm-hmm. and do it? But like you were at the leading edge of like, I bet you, 
you know, it's inspiring to hear that back then that's what you were. You're an example, I think, really, that people is still relevant today to say you can do these things. You can chase these career goals and aspirations and have a family. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I think the key is just before you start delineating very quickly, I can do, you know, once a month meetings and then I'll be at home and you can catch me. Luckily, email was out. It wasn't that long ago. It was 2000. Um, you, you can, like a long time, 20 years, 22 years. But um, that really, I think, is the key is to look right up front and say, this is what I can do and this is what I can't do. And I did not miss a game because I didn't do anything on Friday. The, the, the game nights were Friday nights. or the So I, I did not miss, you know, a game. Uh, for, with my kids, I was there for them when they had activities and so on. So I think that was, uh, I think they'll, you know, they'd all tell you that, that important part because you, you can't get the, you can't get that time back. No, you know, I think that you bring up such a good point there in that you really knew what your values were and you stuck to them. And because you stuck to them, it, it all ended up working. And not, we're not saying that it wasn't at times crazy or hectic, right? We're not saying that. But when you look back at that, you can say, I never missed a game. Yeah. Yeah. And that was important. Very important mm-hmm. to my kids. Oh, bravo. I have grandkids. So I'm waiting. They're, they're five years old. So they're games. They're, my little five-year-old, uh, I went down to Kansas City to watch her little basketball game, uh, which they don't really know about dribbling yet. Kind of maybe one or two dribbles and um, but it was so much fun. I wouldn't miss it. I videotaped it. <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter whether how good they are or what. It just matters that you're there. Yeah. Support them. And you and you think they're wonderful. And yeah. they just know that. Oh, a new guard to support. Love it. It's so much fun. It's even more fun because I have no yeah. responsibility. Right. <laughs> Great. You spoil them and then you get to go home. I do. It's fabulous. It's fabulous. I just love it. Awesome. Everything is solved by a cookie. It's just great. <laughs> you know, th- th- there is a good quote right there. Everything is solved by a cookie. Yep. <laughs> you can use that as the tagline for this podcast. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yes. That's a Kimism. So <laughs> with good oral hygiene mechanisms afterwards. So you just, you know, let's let's keep yes, that proviso will go in there. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> So if everything can be solved uh, by a cookie, um, you deal a lot with conflict, like yes, you help yes. people sort out conflict. And obviously it's a little bit more complicated uh, than solving it with a cookie, although that would be nice. So do you have any top tips for somebody who is experiencing conflict in their practice or in their hospital where they're working? What would you, what would your advice be? The number one issue and the number one um most important thing to do when you're dealing with conflict and conflict is between people, right? You know, you've got someone at work, maybe you're not working well with is to take the people out of the conflict and focused on, on the issue. And for whatever reason, we seem as even as a country to have lost that. If you just even take a look for whatever, you know, party you're at, whatever on the news, if you take a look on the news, if, if an issue comes up, no matter what, what it is, we tend to go for the people involved instead of having a good debate about the issue itself. Mm -hmm. And that tends to happen at work. 
if you don't really like somebody, if maybe you, you don't really get along well with somebody, you just automatically assume that person is is got some evil intent for whatever it is that they do, and and you're angry with the person, so you 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 can't open up your brain to help solve the issue. So what we need to do, the best thing you can do to solve a conflict is to just sit back and say, okay, let's take the people out. Let's take a look. This needs to get done. Our goal is this. This needs to get done. How can this person help us do this? How can this person help us do that? Let's work together and take the people out. And that's why sometimes we, um, I, I work as a mediator and sometimes a mediator is needed because there's so much emotion involved between the two people. You just have to get someone to sit in the middle and say, okay, guys, Let's just focus on the facts right now. Let's just assume that everybody's got the good in mind. People have good intentions. Let's assume that instead of the opposite. And let's just think maybe maybe they think this way because of this, or maybe they think. And I try to help them see the other side. Maybe you know, maybe if you if we work together to in, in dentistry, of course, it's to provide the best patient care possible. What the what can the two of us do together? to make sure that patient has a good experience. So that's the most important thing is take the people out of it and focus on the issue and watch really seriously, watch the news, whatever news you watch, watch the news and and look where they go. They don't go there now. And I think, so it's not giving us, I think it's harder now because Mm -hmm. as a society, we tend not to do that. And it, it it creates more conflict because those are, that's where we look for, for problem resolution. Right. Mm -hmm. So so just watch that and it, it, it'll give you a new perspective to say, oh, they just go right for the throat, you know, that person, you know. Right. That's, and that's so easy to remember. Mm-hmm. Take the people out of it and just look at the problem. Mm-hmm. Thank and it you. probably takes a lot of the drama away from it, too. And then you can just focus on the the facts and the solutions. Yes, mm-hmm. it, it takes a lot of the drama mm-hmm. out uh, wow. and, and a lot of the hurt in the, you know, many times in a dental office, uh, an issue that seems big at the time and seems pretty uh, cut and dry is very complex because it could be that uh, there's two people that maybe, you know, a month ago, somebody felt slighted by somebody else and, and, and then they felt slighted again. And so all of that kind of gets rolled up into a current issue that seems to be hard to solve when you can just take the people out and deal with the issue. And, and, and of course, and again, with uh, your goal in mind and in a dental office, it's how do we provide the best care for our patients? Mm-hmm. And patients don't like drama. They don't want to come in. They want to come in. You know, you're working on their teeth. You're you got a drill in their mouth, and you're working on their teeth. When they come into that office, they want everybody happy mm-hmm. because they don't want any distractions. When you're drilling on that tooth, you don't want to be thinking about something else. You want to be like in a happy place, drilling on that tooth and focusing on that what you're focusing on. So they can tell in a dental office if if there's drama going on and if there's conflict and it's you know sometimes it's just the body language from people have, you know, how do you transfer the patient to the front desk? You know, if it, you need to have a nice little wonderful banter kind of going on to make people feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. Oh, so important. Awesome. Great tip. Um, you know, earlier in the, in the discussion, you alluded to crisis management, that you help with crisis management and that you've even gone through some some crisis in your life. So can you explain a little bit of what crisis management means and and how you help practices and offices deal with that? Sure. I kind of have some crisis management in a number of different areas. You know, working with the ADA many times when the AIDS epidemic came out, I helped them work with um, uh, some of the issues over, should dentists be able to see 
patients with AIDS, are we at risk? And of course, you know, with with what our standard precautions now used to be called universal precautions. You know, we had to kind of work that out within our profession. Another crisis that I worked with was the the, the um, biofilm in our water lines. We didn't really even know about that till a big big article came out in Milwaukee and, you know, it was a big crisis. And, and, and those big crises that occur like in the natural out in the world, the best way to manage them is to be calm. And typically the way I would handle that is say, well, you know, just ask your dentist how they take care of the water, you know, ask your dentist. And that kind of takes the, the pressure off of dentists or bad. In fact, there was a Barbara Walters uh, back in the day when there were four television stations, remember that I mean, you might not remember you might be four. So if somebody was watching, television they only had four stations now there's like hundreds and uh 2020 was a big one most people were watching 2020 and on a 2020 program in the year 2000 barbara walters uh was doing a um a program on biofilm in the water and she um she had there's a visual of a toilet flushing and they tested the toilet water and they tested the water from whatever dentist they were using and uh, found that the the dental water lines uh, were more contaminated with bacteria than the toilet water. So you can imagine the visual on that one. And at the time I was president of the dental association. So at the time I was sitting in my living room with all the cameras focused on me watching the 2020 program. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and what they wanted was a reaction, like, you know, something like that. And I knew I had to just kind of stay calm, staying calm, staying calm is a big key, stay calm. So I had to stay calm. And at the very end, when they asked me about it, I just said, well, you know, we've known about this for a couple of years. And we're doing something where we're, we're disinfecting our water lines. Why don't you just ask your dentist? If you have any questions, ask your dentist. And basically, they accepted that, and, and it took took the the wind out of the out of the anti dental sales at the time. And so I think that when you're, there's three things when there's a crisis that you have to do. First of all, and to stay calm, you can't you can't let your expression show. Uh, the second one is tell the truth about what happened. Don't lie. People can pick that up in a heartbeat. And then make it right. Do whatever you can take to make it right. And sometimes you might have a crisis in your office, as I did when my uh, my son took his own life back in 2009. It absolutely destroyed me. It destroyed my husband. We were practicing together. We were a basket case. You can imagine we couldn't hardly, you know, you're a zombie when you have a horrible trauma like that in your life. You just you kind of walk around like a zombie. Probably for me, it was probably about five years of zombiehood. But you, 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 you're in a horrible state and, and you, you don't know how you're going to work. And you have to go back to work. And patients can tell if you're distracted. And so do patients want you to work on them if you are a zombie and you can hardly move? No, they don't. It's a really tough thing. So I also work with um emotional crisis that occurs within an office, it causes that kind of horrible catastrophic loss or stress that that people suffer. And the way that you manage that, first of all, is you have to acknowledge it. When when somebody has suffered a catastrophic loss in your office, you need to acknowledge the loss. You need to provide a place for them to go when they, um, you know, because they're going to have meltdowns if it's a catastrophic loss. There's going to be times when something's going to trigger you as anyone that suffered a loss knows you get triggers very unexpected moments. And what do you do when you're with a patient and something triggers you? We need to have a plan. We had a crying room that had like Visine in it, you know, makeup remover and, you know, everything we could have to provide for us some, some, some comfort. Uh, You have to have a plan where other team members can take over. If something like that happens, if they know, you know, get a signal, okay, trigger, I've been triggered, come help me, you'll, you'll come and help take over for a few minutes while I get myself put together. And one of the things that happens in a dental office, unlike other places, 
when you have a catastrophic loss like that, my son was very well known. He was very much loved in the community, very well known. And so for six months, the first six months after he died, the vast majority of my patients that I was seeing for clinical care and, you know, my two hygienists, I was checking two hygienists, their, their patients knew who he was and were, had, you know, because it was such a big community event, were unable to, to tell me that they were sorry. Cause when you have a loss, you want to, you need to tell the person, I'm so sorry. And you, you know, give them a hug. Although I know you can't hug anymore. I don't know what we're going to do after COVID, but I mean, we could hug back in those days. Um, and that would happen, you know, so it's, and it's a trigger, you know, it's a trigger when somebody you're trying to get through your day and then you see someone for the first time, I'm so sorry for your loss. And, you know, how do you get through that? It's a, it's a horrible experience. It's horrible, but it's something you have to do. There's really no alternative. You know, you can't be cold and not mention it. You know, you have to kind of go there. So I think just understand that in dentistry, many times uh, grief is kind of done in secret because you can't show your patients too much because they don't want to we be dentists working on you, right? And uh, but yet you, you're going to feel it. So I think as a team, we need to acknowledge that that the person going through this is going to go through a really tough time, and that we do have to smile and try to go through it as best we can, you know, in our zombie state, uh, and and work together to know that it's going to be a long time because for the first six months, I was triggered what probably three times an hour maybe, you know, uh, with those patients, and then the next six months. You'd gotten through that first set of patients, but then you have the the one year recalls coming in, you know, and so again triggered, but less the second six months, and then after about a year, that kind of calms down. Mm-hmm. So, just understanding that grief is a something that's a very difficult thing to get through, and as a as a team, if you can lead your team through these grief experiences mm-hmm. and lead them together you're going to be a much stronger team. And like right now, when I don't know how it is in your area, but especially outstate Minnesota, you, it's very difficult to find assistance and hygienists to work anymore. And during these times, if this is one of the best things you can do to build up loyalty in your group is to have a team that they know, you know, they know you're going to be there for them in difficult times. It's probably one of the most important things you can do to keep your team together. That was a long answer, but it, I did kind of put a lot of different types of crises in there. Right. Mm-hmm. No, you know, I, I I love how, you know, you, you distinguish that there are these crises that are outside of clinical mm-hmm. and, you know, because we, as people, we're not just clinical. We, we have many facets to our lives and so does our team. And I also think that having the support of your team um, behind you through that is, you know, like you say, we, we kind of have to put on this happy face, but when, when you can be vulnerable with your team and know that they got your back, it probably helps a lot. It does. Wow. Important, important work that you do. Thank you. Yeah. I've learned a lot Mm -hmm. from listening to that. Like, and I just haven't even thought about how you described it with all the recalls with everybody coming in and that process and how that process it just hit me then like, wow, that is just like a, a cyclical thing that, bam, bam. yeah, repeatedly. So I know, you know, you speak and we hear about these very, very hard times that you've gone through, but you also have some things now that are your passion projects. And um, there's one that involves 
faraway places and uh, books and fun things like that. So would you share with us what that is? Yes. You know, right after my son died, and again, that I've had a lot of trauma in my life, but boy, that just, it came out of the blue and just blew me to pieces. And I just could hardly function. And I think many of your uh, listeners will have been through pro- situations like that in their lives. It's just mm-hmm. something that just completely blowed you over. Mm-hmm. And what I was getting, I was getting, and, and I'm a person of faith, so I think God was sending me some signs here. That's what I believe. But um, I was getting these, all, all of a sudden, all these Rwanda uh, signals coming through. I sat next to a woman who had, who at a breakfast who had um, been in Rwanda. It was Rwanda, and I talked to her about her family. And she goes, "Well, my first, I described her first. Now she has a second family, and so she took some people that were um, within her community that uh, had survived and made them into a second family, mm-hmm. which which happened a lot then. Mm-hmm. And so I was hit with." That and then I, I read the book Left to Tell by Immaculate Ila Bigazi, who is this amazing woman. And then uh, I had breakfast or lunch with my friend Pam, who was on the Books for Africa Board of Directors and had been to Rwanda and said, you know, we need to do a memorial library for Eric in Rwanda. And I said, Yes, I yeah, I would love to. The reason I went to Rwanda is that they are the experts in grief recovery, in trauma recovery. There is nobody in the world that can hold a candle really to them, I believe, and how they have built their country back um, from this horrible genocide. I don't know, 1994, there was a horrible, horrible, horrible situation that occurred in Rwanda in which um, over a million people were murdered by their neighbors. It's a kind of the, the Hutu, Tutsi, Hutu uh, tribe, um, not really a definitive tribe, but it was just kind of a, uh, just as Hitler had had managed a, uh, a genocide, uh, it had been kind of politicians had been working on these issues to build hate between groups. Um, and uh, it, it just all came to a head. And if you can imagine being if you were a Tutsi, your next door neighbors would be coming at you with machetes and knives. And it wasn't, it wasn't an invading army. It was your neighbors. And, and um, I, you know, I, please read about, it. I can't even describe the atrocities that occurred. It was just the most horrible thing I, I could even imagine. Yeah. That happened in 1994 and Eric died in 2009. And in 2011, we brought our first containers over and I went there because I wanted them, I wanted to find out how do you recover? Because I lost one child. I lost, I lost one son. I still had two children left. I had a husband left. I had a good life. They lost everything. And typically during the genocide, their all their goods were stolen or burned or whatever. So they they were they came out of it. If they did survive with absolutely nothing, many times their entire families were wiped out. How do you survive that? And the most important thing that that um, happened is they rebuilt their country. It was six oh, uh, 1994, 2000, so six, 16 years, 16, 17 years, if my math is right. After the genocide, I went there and visited. And they had made incredible strides. And the reason they made incredible strides is they decided that if they continued with the hate, 
that their children would end up in the same position that they were in. So they had to do something to stop the hate. And so what they did, the uh, uh, a Tutsi uh, army basically came down from Rwanda and, and, and kind of established order. And they punished the perpetrators. So the people that did the murders did not get away scot-free. They were put in prison. They punished the perpetrators, but they also decided as a group to forgive them. How do you do that? How do you forgive them? They forgave them because they knew they needed a better country. And as these and it, it, the perpetrators in, in 2011, when I was there the first time, were still in jail. You could see them all along the side of the roads. Um, interestingly enough, they would be lined up with hatchets and sickles and all kinds of things because they would, in Rwanda, the prisoners brew their own food. You know, so they were out gardening and they would be walking back to the jail. There'd be maybe 30 of them with hatchets and sickles walking along the road. And then two guards, one on either end with rifles. And I was looking out there and saying, wait a minute, isn't that how they kill people in the genocide? Isn't this an unsafe environment? There's 30 people with weapons and just two. And people with me just looked at me like, well, no, they don't have a place to go. If they went back to their families, their families would turn them right back in. So, you know, don't worry about it. They got to serve their sentence and then, they, then they'll get out. And when they got out, they would go back to the communities and many times uh, make amends to the families, acknowledge the hurt that they had done and the people they had killed and try to make some sort of amends to the families they had impacted by building homes or working for them. It, it's just an amazing system. And so when I went there, I went there because I wanted to find out how do you heal? And they really, I mean, you, you can't have a better example. They are the most amazing people in the world. They are the most beautiful people I've ever seen. You could see the love coming out of these beautiful women. I worked with a lot of co-op, women's cooperatives and uh, who had lost everything. And many of them had been infected with AIDS during the genocide by the perpetrators. You know, So they killed the families, raped them and gave them AIDS. And, and uh, now here they were living with that as well. So, uh, they, Rwanda was an amazing place, and it taught me so many things. And we, I started working with the dental community there as well. And I don't really know how it happened, but it's um, it was started in 2011. So 11 years later, we now have over 40 libraries and 250 some thousand books and and some computer libraries. I don't even know how it happened. We I just kept plugging away, and things just kept mm-hmm. coming together. It was probably one of the most amazing privileges I've ever had, and I just wish we could all go to Rwanda and just, you know, figure out how to get along because that's what we need. Mm-hmm. Sorry, another long answer. No. Wow. No, it really all, you know, it, it really feels like it is an organic path that you've been on that has woven itself into all these facets of your life. Mm-hmm. And how now you continue to essentially pay it forward and help others um, with with the things that you have have learned along the way. And so, thank you, <laughs> thank you. Um, I appreciate your long answers because, again, like Karen said earlier, I learned a lot, and uh, it makes me want to go to Rwanda. And <laughs> we'll talk about that. Yes. So. <laughs> Maybe the mint door should go to Rwanda. There you go. Oh, yes. 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 Oh, my All gosh. Right. <laughs> that that we can, we can work on that. Excellent. Well, Dr. Harms, we um, probably are going to wrap this up, but I would love to know um, just how, how if somebody's interested in working with you or learning more about any of the things that we've talked about today, what's the best way to find you? 
if you just go to the, the dentalmediator.com, just go to my website and there's a portal you can get through and get right to me with my email address or Dr. Kim at Pine Lake Law Firm.com. Excellent. All right. And we will make sure that those links are in our show notes so that if you are listening while you're driving, you can check the show notes out later and just hit the link and find you. So awesome. Thank you so much for spending some time with the Mint Door today. You brightened our our room and our lives and uh, continue to do so with everything that you do. Thank you so much for all of it. Well, thank thank you you very much. All right. We'll talk to you soon.